you would this morning, if you'd like to turn in your Bibles to the first chapter of the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1 will be the text we'll be looking at this morning. Then also in our confession, if you have a copy of the Confession of Faith, we're in chapter 26 dealing with the church and in paragraph 1. There are some extra copies of the confession out in the entryway if you do not have one of those. Please help yourself to those. Uh, If this is... uh, one of your first times visiting with us during our 10 o'clock hour, we are studying through our confession, so we'll be here for quite some time. Uh, so I would encourage you to pick up one of those confessions. I'd like to begin by reading the paragraph in chapter 26 of the church. We're going to deal this morning with the subject of the universal church. Now this is going to carry over into uh, the next few paragraphs as well. But paragraph one of the confession reads this way. The Catholic or universal church which, with respect to the internal work of the Spirit and truth of grace, may be called invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. Now, if you go over to your text in Colossians chapter number 1, we're going to pick up reading uh, there in verse number 16, or verse 15 rather. And again, we're picking up in the middle of this text, so we're not getting the full context, but I think you'll uh, see where we're going with this this morning. Verse 15, Colossians 1, with regard to Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he, again, this is Christ, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell." And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. In the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, and which, which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church, whereof I am made a minister, according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working which worketh in me mightily. We introduced this chapter in the confession last week by making reference to the importance of the church and how the church is the body of Christ. It is that which magnifies and demonstrates the glory of who God is. 
And it is in Christ Jesus himself that we see the true glory of what the church is. Uh, we looked at passages last week, the ones in Matthew, where Jesus declared that he would build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Uh, that's one of the great comforting chapters and in, in verses uh, to remind us uh, that what Christ has built, the gates of hell, doesn't say might not prevail against it. It says it will not prevail against it. Satan will not prevail against the church because the church is the body of Christ. And those that are in Christ have already overcome the world. And they have overcome he who is in the world, which is the devil. Uh, we are, the old cliche is, we are on the winning side. And we are on the victorious side. We are not on a side that is hoping to win, hoping to gain some ground, hoping to things work out. We're already on the winning side. It, the word is already settled in heaven. So when we read about the church, we're reading about that which Christ died for. Christ died for his church. He didn't die for just an unknowable person. He died for the church. He died for his people. He shed his blood on the cross. He was taken from that cross. He was buried. And on the third day, he did raise from that grave victorious over death, hell, sin, and the grave. And he didn't stay dead. But it's important to know that he did die. He actually died. He wasn't in a sleep. He died. He died for the church. And this church, although we see it in various forms, and even as Paul was writing here in Colossians, he speaks about this reality of that which all in whom Christ has died for, all of whom, including those who are not at this address this morning, are part of what's referred to as the universal church. It is the totality of all of those who are in Christ. It is who the confession makes mention of, the Catholic or universal church, which with respect to the internal work of the Spirit and truth of grace may be called invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that are, that have been, or shall be gathered into one. That is this principle of this universal, yet to us this morning, we cannot see it all. That's the invisible part of it. But there is this universal church. So in this paragraph, we see that not only is this universal, invisible church being defined, but it's defined very simply as all of the elect. In other words, all of the people who have ever been truly saved both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the, this group of people are called universal because it incorporates the saints from every age. Not just the saints from the 2000s, not just the saints from the 1990s and the 80s, but from all the saints from all generations are what's titled or given that heading of the elect. That's who the confession writers were talking about, and that's one of the footnotes that they mention is Colossians 1.18, which we read as part of a larger reading this morning. And he, Christ, is the head of the body, the church. That means Christ is the head of the church, the elect. Uh, the elect are the church. Okay, this is important to, to make a distinction. The elect are the church. Again, we've talked about how anybody can put church on their sign. They can claim to be a church. But if you are not in Christ, you are not one of His, you cannot nor do can you have the right to call yourself a church. Because it is the church, the elect, in which Christ died for. And this invisible universal church is made up of these people 
that are invisible because we are not actually gathering together right now with all of the elect. Now, what a gathering that would be. Wouldn't it be something? Again, but let's not make too much of this because the body of Christ gathering even in a local church, which we're going to talk about, please don't lose the beauty of that. This is a beautiful gathering this morning. Whether there's two of us here or 40 of us here, whatever the number is, wherever God's people are gathered together, it is a glorious gathering. But imagine meeting and gathering together with all the elect from all generations. Well, it's not going to happen here on earth. But there is coming a day when all the elect from every age will gather together. And we will gather as one body. And the church, although we don't see them all today, we are part of the body of Christ. That's why we intentionally make sure we pray for others who are the body of Christ. That's why there's not, not only not supposed to be division in a local church, there should not be division in the universal church. We should be praying for one another who are standing for the true gospel. Because the true gospel, those who are the elect, are all part of the body. Now this group, although we never actually gather on this earth in this age, it will only be in the ages to come that this entire assembly will gather together in God's presence. I made mention of this during our past Wednesday evening, but Revelation 19 is a beautiful picture of somewhat of a glimpse of uh, what this will have an appearance of. Now again, it doesn't encompass all that we will know and all that we will see, but Revelation 19 says in verse 1, And after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, for he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia. And her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints." And he saith unto me, write, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, these are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, see, thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This beautiful gathering and this invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb, there is coming a day when the universal church will come together as the people of God. So we see this picture. Now as we pull the confession down to smaller parts, let's first of all establish a couple of definitions here. And today we'll just be pretty much introducing paragraph one. We're not going to cover everything that needs to be covered today, but let's deal with the term that the confession writers used 
the Catholic or universal church. Now, the term Catholic here is not reference to the Roman Catholic Church. It is a term that means universal. It is a term that the Roman Church has incorporated into uh, their name, but that does not mean what the confession writers actually were referring to. They were not referring to the church at Rome. They were not referring to uh, anything other than the universal church. And we'll get into why they felt the need to do that. But throughout the scripture, we understand that when we see the universal church or we see the word church being used, in the New Testament alone, we see the word church being used approximately 115 times. Now, most of the times that we see the church being referenced to, most of it is referring to a local gathering. So don't lose sight of the fact that the emphasis has always been through Scripture, an emphasis on the local church gathering. Now, there have been people throughout history who have said that the local church is the only church. There is no universal church. There's been others that have said there's only a universal church. There's not a local church. There is both the universal church, all of the elect from every age, and the way that the, the universal church is actually demonstrated that there is a real church is at the local level where local churches gather together. And not only are they a local church, but they are signifying that there is a great body of believers who are part of the universal church. So most of the times throughout Scripture, the church refers to this local gathering of believers in a specific place. But there are ways and places where the church is used in a general sense. Now, we read in Colossians chapter 1, uh, one of those places, uh, but also we see that in Ephesians chapter 1. So if you'd like to turn there, I think we might have mentioned this last week. Ephesians chapter 1. And again, Paul, as he's writing to the church at Ephesus, remember, he's writing to a local church, but there are times when he makes reference to this universal church. So he's coming in and out of who he's, who he's speaking to here. In Ephesians 1 verse 10, it says that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Now, if you've got your confession, you'll notice that there's only one footnote, and that one footnote points to all of these references. Hebrews 12, 23, Colossians 1, 18, Ephesians 1, 10, 22, and 23, and Ephesians 5, verse 23, 27, and verse 32. So these are the verses that are being used to demonstrate the picture, or illustrate rather, of this universal church. In verse 22, he says, and he hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Now, we can say at the local level, at the local church level, that Christ Jesus is our head. He is the one who has the preeminence. Much to people's... Uh, sometimes disappointment, ultimately the pastor or the elders of a local church are not the head. Christ is. Christ is the head of not only the entire body, the entire universal church, he is the head of each individual local church as well. And those who are in those roles of pastor, elder, or whatever the case may be, should understand that they're not the head. They're not the boss. Christ is. Christ is the one who died for the church. 
Christ is the one that shed his blood for the church. He gave his life for the church. I didn't do anything close to that. My death would not procure anything for you. It would not grant you a single ounce more of saving grace. It wouldn't grant you anything more. He died for the church. So when Paul was writing about Christ ruling and reigning over the churches, of course he's talking about the universal body, but he's also talking about each individual uh, church itself. So we need to understand that this word Catholic here refers to the universal church. Number two, the first two paragraphs, so paragraph one and paragraph two of the confession, are structured and concerned primarily the principle of the church invisible and visible. So they begin, the confession writers wanted us to see this picture of the invisible and the visible so that we were not led to just say there's only one. There is the invisible, the total of all the elect from every generation, the visible church, which is that which we're going to see at the local level, we're going to see in our local congregations. That is, in fact, what they have. So they're making these two very distinct uh, uh, markings between the invisible church and the visible church and then the universal church and the local churches. So when we look at that distinction, so we're first of all, over this week and at least next week, we want to keep in mind that we're dealing primarily with the whole number of the elect. Okay, so today's study and next week, we're primarily looking at the universal, all saints from every age. And thinking about the wonderful truth that one day, they all, we all will be gathered together in one. That day that's coming is a day that we all, as the body of Christ, look forward to. We look forward to it for various reasons, but we look forward to it even as the Bible describes of him, Christ himself is going to gather his people together. He is going to assemble them together. And of course, all these things are going to happen at the appointed time and at the appointed hour when it is time for Christ to come and get his bride. He's going to come and there'll be no delay and the, the body of Christ is going to be united in one and there will not be this invisible. We're, we're going to see and we're going to be gathered together. This is a wonderful truth. We spent a number of weeks prior to getting to chapter 26 dealing, about, dealing with the principle and the teaching of the unity of the church and how important it is for even our church to be in unity. Local churches should be in unity. We have long made excuses for division and there should not be division in the church. There shouldn't be division. There should be this unity because we are in the body of Christ and he, Christ is our unity. He, he's the one that unifies us. I can assure you, not every person is going to always see things exactly the same way. Under any subject, put a group of people in a room and you're not going to get 100% agreement. But we do have the agreement of the unity that we have in Christ Jesus and that He is the head. He is the one who has the preeminence. Thinking about all those who have been saved from all ages. Here we who live even in, in 2022, we share the same salvation with the believers from the Old Testament, from the Old Covenant. We have the same salvation that Abraham. We have the same salvation of Moses. We have the same salvation of Joshua. We are sharing in this one faith. There isn't this one faith that they had and one faith that we have. We are shared in unity under the heading of Christ. 
And yet, even the Old Testament saints didn't have the, the, the ability to see what you and I can see. But yet they had a faith in a promised Redeemer. A faith in a Christ who would come and a blood that would be shed. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant believer believed in the Christ proclaimed by the types and the shadows and the, the sacrificial system and all that we've learned even in our study of Hebrews. You and I today, we believe in Christ that was preached by the apostles, by the disciples as they went forth and preached the gospel. All of us will be brought into glory together. In Hebrews chapter number 11, if you'd like to turn there, this gives us a description Again, many other ways. We're, we're, we're in chapter 11 during our uh, morning worship service. But when we get to the end of that uh, glorious chapter 11, you'll see Hebrews 11, verse 39 and 40. It says, And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Uh, there is something greater coming. There's something greater coming. We're going to sit at the very same table with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. Matthew 8 makes reference to this. It's amazing how these, these truths are intertwined into these narratives. And sometimes we, we look at, we read a passage and we sometimes, we we miss the details. I won't read the whole chapter, but look at Matthew 8, verse number uh, 10. It says, When Jesus heard it, He marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So He declares that there is a group of people that will sit down with them but then sadly and to our for our admonishment verse 12 but the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth literally there will be those who will be cast out those who refused to repent and believe the gospel there is nowhere scripturally that the Bible declares that there is a universal salvation for every single person. There is this line that says that there are those who will sit down in the heavenly kingdom with the other saints. But then there are those that by the biblical accounts will be cast out into outer darkness. But the universal church, those who are in Christ, will never be cast out. They will be around that table. Thirdly, as we look at this paragraph, we should realize that although we are considering a paragraph that deals with the church, which is the doctrine of ecclesiology, the fancy word for it, you don't have to know that, but that's the fancy word for the doctrine of the church, we're actually discussing soteriology, another fancy word for the doctrine of salvation. So when you declare the church, the true church, you're declared, declaring a church is made up of saved people. People that have been redeemed. People who are in the body. You see, the doctrine of the church, ecclesiology, overlaps the doctrine of salvation because the church is composed of those who are saved. 
The elect are not people that are unsaved. The elect are people who are saved. They are people who make up the body of Christ. The church as an assembly and the church as a gathering, we do speak of them as invisible and visible. Now, we did a little bit of the background of the confession and why they spent so much time with the Baptist Confession of Faith. And I mentioned to you that the Westminster Confession of Faith has six paragraphs on the church. The Baptist Confession of Faith has 15 paragraphs. And the reason that they did that is they wanted to differentiate very clearly the difference between uh, what the church was supposed to be identified. And one of the main reasons why they spent so much time with the paragraphs is they wanted there to be a complete understanding of the reason that the word Catholic or universal church was being used. In other words, this invisible church is made up of those who are truly saved. The word universal is a popular word because universal seems to be the fair way. Shouldn't everybody have the same privilege and the same right? Shouldn't everybody have access to this same God? Shouldn't God, if He's being fair and just, shouldn't He automatically include everybody in this universal, invisible church? But we notice that the confession writers, when they were speaking in these terms... They were speaking that the true church is made up of those who are truly in Christ. You cannot have the church. You cannot have the doctrine of ecclesiology without the doctrine of salvation being included in that. Those two overlap. They go together. Saving faith is demonstrated and saving grace is demonstrated through the body, through the church. Now again, I don't know how much it's taken hold now, but for a number of years, there was this great movement and this great emphasis on what we'll refer to as parachurch organizations. And what that was is that there was this this push to do, quote-unquote, ministry outside of the church itself. In other words, you don't really need the church. You don't really need a local church. Just do ministry. God's God's okay with ministry, but yet it is the church that is the very program, the very foundation of what he said. This is where the work is to, this is where it's to originate from and to go forth from. This is my plan. This is my program. The local church is a precious thing. It, it it, It shouldn't be neglected. And even though there is this universal invisible church we cannot see, the way we give a picture that the universal church actually exists is by ministering at the local church level. We are demonstrating the universal church even when we minister out of this little congregation here. And again, there are no little congregations in the eyes of God. It's not about how large your church is. It's not about how many people. It's about is that church or is that a body of believers? It's, it is this viewing of the entire company of the redeemed, the saved people of God. And even though the universal church is invisible, the universal church in a way is quite visible when we look at the local church level and we see saved people all around the world. It amazes me that there are people who have or will be preaching the exact same gospel and exactly the same counsel we're hearing today. 
that this is not new doctrine. This is not something new. I didn't come across a new study this week. This is, this is the authoritative Word of God that for generations, people have been proclaiming the same doctrine, the same truth, because it doesn't need to be amended. It doesn't need to be changed. The church doesn't have to be changed to meet the needs of the culture. And that's, that is an infiltration of, 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 of it was never intended. It, it, it was never meant for us to meet the needs of the culture. It was meant for us to continue to proclaim the gospel, the true gospel of Christ. Because the gospel goes out and will go forth no matter what a man's status is. No matter what his financial status is, no matter what his background is, the gospel is to go forth to every creature. And I don't have to amend it. I don't come in on a Sunday morning and look and see who's going to be here first and then determine what message do I go with now or depending on who the audience is. No, it's the same word no matter where you come from because it's my only source of truth. The confession writers, again, as we said, we don't want to make them larger than God. We don't want to say that their confession is more important than the Scriptures because we know that's not the case. But what their intent was is that we would fully understand that the universal church, although it's not visible in its totality right now, it is something that we can actually think and we can actually see. Let's finish with this this morning. Go quickly to Acts chapter 8. And I want you to, I want you to notice that there is the universal church, but we also know that there is this specific church that was experiencing persecution. The universal church as the saved people of God, I think you would agree with me today, we could say the church as a whole, if you take it worldwide, is suffering persecution at varying degrees. But in Acts chapter number 8, it mentions Saul. And of course, it's a, it's a carryover from the end of Acts chapter number 7. Again, it's one of those unfortunate chapter divisions because this is the, the, the death of Stephen. But chapter 8 begins by saying, And Saul was consenting unto his death, and at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. So it's not the universal church itself that's being persecuted. It's the local churches that are being persecuted. It was the church in Jerusalem. It, it's the church in China, for example, in various provinces. So it's not necessarily the universal church that's being persecuted. The way we know it's being persecuted is by what's happening on the local levels in these churches. And we see that's what it makes it so amazing that Saul at that time was consenting to the death and persecution of Stephen. And it says there was a great persecution. If you go over to Acts chapter number 9, the story, the narrative continues, verses 1 and 2. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, wept unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And Acts chapter 9, of course, is a glorious truth 
where Saul consenting to the persecution of the church, he's sending out, doing everything he can. He says, if you see anybody who is of that way, which was a derogatory statement towards believers, anybody of that way, I want them dead or I want them imprisoned. And did Paul suddenly have an epiphany and come to himself and said, you know what, I think today I ought to get saved? No, the Lord Jesus Christ met him on the road to Damascus and opened his eyes. It's an amazing thing how the Scripture is so clear. If if Saul would have continued on his way without the intervention of the Lord himself, he would have continued persecuting, he would have continued killing, and probably today Saul would have been known as one of the greatest persecutors the church has ever known had it not been for the grace of God. And before we throw too many stones at Saul... You and I would be persecutors of this church as well had it not been for the grace of God. Lest you think one day you woke up and said, I think I'll seek God for myself. No, you sought God because He sought you. And if He saved you, He has added you to the body of Christ. He did not make salvation possible or attainable. He actually accomplished your salvation. And by saving you, He placed you into the body of Christ. Not only the universal church that will one day gather together, But also, and I believe this with every fiber of my being, I believe he also places his people in local churches. And he puts them there and he says, this is where you are to minister the truth. I don't take it lightly. I don't take it lightly when a single person walks in the front doors of this church because I truly believe in the sovereign and providential hand of God. And he moves and he places and he puts his people. But also understand that the confession writers knew this, and I'll finish with this. I believe they also knew, and we'll see this as we get into the paragraphs further, they also knew that the church throughout every age, throughout every generation, would suffer persecution. That there would never be a time in history when the church would be persecution-free. Every generation believes that the church is under the most severe persecution it's ever been. And every generation says this is as bad as it's been. But I would encourage you, even go back and read through your Bible and read about the persecution the church was facing then. Get your history books and read about what the churches were facing. The church has always been under severe persecution. We live in a 24-hour news cycle where the moment a persecution happens, we know about it within 30 seconds. That's, that's how our life is. That's how society is. But the invisible church, the, in, the universal church being demonstrated at the local level, this, this is the picture, the beauty of it. Now next week as we get into paragraph 2, it, it, it elaborates more on this visibility issue in paragraph 2. But this paragraph also is going to make an extremely strong statement regarding and a separation away from what the Catholic Church at that time was claiming to be. You see, when the confession writers wrote this, they were fully persuaded in their minds that Christ alone is the head of the church, not the Pope. Now, folks, when you see the Pope stand up on television and claim himself to be the head of the church, that is heresy. That is falsehood. He is not the head of my church. He is not the head of the body of Christ. He cannot nor can he ever act in the place of Christ. 
popes have come and gone. When this confession was written, they believed that the pope in which the head of that Catholic church, they believed that was the Antichrist. And they believed it thoroughly. Now, we today, we could debate that. But that's why that one of the reasons why they were so strong in their language. Why they were so strong in declaring that the Christ is the only head of the church. So next week, if you'd like to read ahead a little bit, read into paragraph 2. Um, study the footnoted uh, scriptures there. And I hope it'll be a help to you. And then we'll deal again with paragraph 2 next week. All right? So let's.